0: We've been parasitized by so much wokeism that now companies have, in many cases, lost focus of their main mission. How does a woman respond to infidelity? Oftentimes people who hate evolutionary theory will get upset because they think that if you explain something scientifically, this means that you are justifying it or condoning it. A lot of the activists will argue heterosexuality is learned, whereas homosexuality is innate. Now that is insane. What infectious ideas today do you feel have are creating a lot of momentum? Most people are cognitive misers, meaning that they are intellectually lazy. If I want to truly find out whether the Democrats were the racist ones or not, well, that's going to have to force me to actually do some work. Why don't I just believe Uncle Biden who tells me that, no, it's the Republicans that are the KKK white supremacists and that's good enough for me. Oftentimes what people say in their imbecilic myopic way, they think that the attack on freedom only comes from the government. The greatest danger comes from creating a society where we will self-censor.
1: So, gang, I want to I want to prepare you for this, because get ready to have a mental workout in the next 60 to 90 minutes with my guest today, Gott Saad, uh, who has uh, uh, written many books. You know, let me just kind of give you a background. Professor Evolutionary behavioral scientist, author, wrote a book, which I love, The Consuming Instinct, What Juicy Burgers, Ferraris, Pornography, and Gift-Giving Reveals About Human Nature, which we'll get into, as well as this recent book that just came out uh, October 6th of 2020, uh, last year, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, uh, and then we'll talk about critical race theory. We're probably going to get into identity politics, and we'll get into a few other topics. But, God, thank you so much for making time to uh, for being a guest on the entertainment.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Patrick. What a pleasure to be with you. When I announced that uh, I was coming on your show, I got a lot of excitement. I must shamefully admit that I wasn't very familiar with your show. Now I've corrected that mistake.
1: Well, I'm glad to have you. Our audience is also very excited to uh, hear from you. So, Let's let's get right into it, if you don't mind, for some of the folks that maybe don't know you, they haven't seen your content. You got tens of millions of views online. But for those that don't know, would you mind taking a minute and giving us your background?
0: Sure. So, I mean, my personal background or professional? one, or well, both.
1: personal, where you're from and then professional. Yeah.
0: So personal, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon in the 60s. We were part of the last group of uh, Lebanese Jews who had steadfastly refused to read the signs of the looming dangers. And So we were in Lebanon in the mid 70s when the Lebanese Civil War broke out. We were there the first year. All all future butchering is always measured against the benchmark of how brutal the Lebanese Civil War was. And I could tell you, as an 11-year-old child, I could attest to how brutal it was. Uh, We were able, luckily, to escape uh, after that first year of the war, moved to Montreal, Canada, and uh, that's where uh, my uh, adventure in the West began. Uh, Professionally, my scientific work is at the intersection of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology and consumer behavior. So I look at what are the fundamental biological drivers that make us the consumers that we are. But of course I define consumption very broadly. It's not just consuming Coca-Cola and posting pictures on Instagram. We consume religion. We consume friendships. We consume, uh, you know, all literature, and so everything is consumatory. I look at the biological underpinnings of that consumatory nature.
1: What What inspired you, and what was what got you to say, "I want to learn more about this stuff"?
0: Oh yeah, thank you. Great question. So, first semester as a doctoral student at Cornell University, nineteen ninety. I can't believe that it's almost, well, it's more than 30 years ago. Uh, I, I had taken a course, an advanced social psychology course with a professor by the name of Dennis Regan. And about halfway through the course, he assigned a book called Homicide, which was a book looking at patterns of criminality from an evolutionary perspective. Huh. And so I can give you a few examples if you'd like, but, hey. but that's that's when I was bitten by the, by the bug. So... For example, if I told you, Patrick, let's see if you can guess this. Let's see if you are a budding evolutionary psychologist. If I told you, what is the number one predictor of all possible predictors that can help us understand whether a child is going to be abused? So for example, you could say if he's born on the wrong side of the tracks. So give me your best possible predictor, and then Mm -hmm. I'll give you the correct evolutionary one so that you get a sense of how powerful evolutionary thinking is. And understanding human phenomenon. number one predictor a lack of father figure. I mean that's a great one, and I'm sure it it has an effect. But I'll just jump to the actual answer. The number one predictor is if there is a step parent in the house, uh, and the idea being that humans are a biparental species, meaning both men and women invest heavily in their children, and therefore most people, whether they do it consciously or not are going to exhibit differential investment in their biological children and their stepchildren. So, for example, if you think about uh, Cinderella, well, the story of Cinderella is rooted in evolutionary principles, right? It's the evil stepmother, but she's only evil to the stepdaughter. She's She's not evil dispositionally also to her biological children. And there are some very clear biological reasons why. People would exhibit that penchant to to be less investing in their stepchildren. I'll give you one other quick example. Who who is the number one most dangerous person in a woman's life, irrespective of which culture she comes from? Well, it turns out, not surprisingly, it's not the guy who's hiding in the tree, you know, a serial killer. It's usually her long-term partner, her male partner, who right. typically, when he when he is triggered into a homicidal rage, is because of either realized or suspected infidelity now why would men be so triggered by that possibility because since we are a biparental species i don't want to spend 18 20 25 years raising the kid of the sexy gardener who used to come and you know trim our bushes therefore i become when i say i i mean prototypical male both you and i patrick are descendants of ancestors who really cared that their women Hopefully, don't stray. So because of paternity uncertainty, men have evolved the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral patterns that create sexual territoriality. And so when I saw the explanatory power of evolutionary thinking, I had my aha moment. So I thought I would apply evolution to study consumer behavior.
1: Yeah, that, that's fascinating when you're talking about that. So let, let's go to the first book because, I mean, I got some questions for you just in regards to your first book, and then we'll get into the second one as well. So the consuming instinct, uh, what juicy burgers, Ferraris, pornography, and gift giving reveal about human nature. When you wrote this ten years ago, exactly ten years ago, last month, June of 2011, which has been translated to Korean and Turkish. Interesting to have been translated to Korean and Turkish. Uh, what's the book about? And one, can you tell us what can you tell us about the consuming instinct, about juicy burgers, Ferraris, pornography, and gift giving?
0: All right, so the the reason why I chose those four examples, there's a backstory to it. So I'll, I'll explain in a second. Please. But generally speaking, the book is basically arguing contrary to all of the social sciences, which presume that. What makes us different from other animals is that we transcend our biology, right? So typically social scientists think, well, sure, evolution explains the behavior of the mosquito and your dog and the giraffe, but don't you dare, Dr. Sad, apply the same principles to explain human behavior, let alone consumer behavior. Well, that's completely silly. I mean, when I put on my hat as a consumer, my hormones don't cease to matter. My biology doesn't cease to matter. So in a very general way, what the consuming instinct is about is how to apply biological thinking to understand why we do the things that we do when we put on our hats as consumers. Now, why did I pick juicy burgers, pornography, gift giving, and so on? Well, because I argue that there are four fundamental Darwinian modules that drive our behavior. There is the survival module, right? So everything that's related to our survival instinct. So the juicy burger example speaks to that because we've evolved the gustatory preferences to prefer some juicy manifestation rather than raw celery, right? Patrick and I might disagree about the type of fatty foods we prefer. I might prefer a juicy steak, you may prefer a fatty uh, chocolate mousse, but we both probably prefer some fatty food over raw carrots, precisely because your ancestors and mine evolved in an environment of caloric scarcity, caloric uncertainty, therefore our taste buds have evolved to deal with that evolutionary problem. So that's juicy burgers. Pornography refers to the Sega module, which is reproduction. So many of the things that you and I do, and everyone else does, is precisely linked to the fact that we are a sexually reproducing species. So in the same way that the peacock's tail evolved so that he can impress the peahens into saying, look, despite the fact that I've got this very burdensome tail, I'm still alive, you should pick me, I'm the right mate for you. Well, in the human context, my Maserati becomes my peacock's tail. So that explains uh, a, lot, a lot of the, you know, and the reason why we're attracted to pornography is because it titillates our computational systems in our brain for sexual variety. You mean I can get on the internet now and there are 10,000 beautiful, nubile women that are ready to quote mate with me virtually? Well, it's very easy for then the brain to be hijacked by this alluring visual stimulus. Then the other two basically refer to two other modules. Kin selection explain why would I ever jump into the river to save three brothers. Well, the the reason would be because my three brothers on average share half their genes with me. So if I jump into the river and save them, and even if I die, it makes perfect evolutionary sense to do so. So a lot of gift giving rituals that you and I engage in with one another, if let's say you're my brother, speak to that uh, kin-based altruism. And then finally, reciprocal altruism refers to, well, okay, I would jump into the river to save my three brothers, but why would I jump into the river to save Patrick? He's not my brother. I mean, my literal genetic brother. But in this case, maybe Patrick is a very good friend and he will reciprocate. Today, I'll, he's drowning in the river, but tomorrow he might reciprocate and protect me if, if you know, if I come under under harm. So what I basically argue is that much of what we do as consumers, Can be traced back to one of those four key Darwinian modules and hence that subtitle. I hope it wasn't too long-winded. I
1: love that. I love that. So you you know the I don't know if you've heard it, probably you've heard this question. You're on a boat, you got three people on, you can only save one. It's your mom, your child, or your wife. Who do you save? Have you looked this one up or no? Have you? Okay, so
0: it's it's funny that you say this because actually there is an exact same story to the guy the evolutionary scientist who was developing that framework, it was based on, you know, I would jump into the river to save four brothers. So, so who would I save? I guess I'd have to do the evolutionary calculus. Well, it would depend on whether you asked me this when I got married, if I'm 22 years old, or if my wife is post-menopausal, right? Because the reproductive it, sorry, I'm. It's gonna sound cowed, but that's right. <laughs> Calculating <laughs> the, the reproductive benefits of saving her depends on where she is in her wow. reproductive window. So it's a complicated story. But the fact that you ask this exactly speaks to the type of evolutionary sure. calculus calculations that we go through.
1: So, so it depends on what phase of your life you're in. So, earlier on, it would be your wife. Later on, it may be your kid.
0: Exactly. And by the way your kid carries more weight for you or less, depending on how old they are. So for example, in societies where they have practiced infanticide, infanticide is the recurring killing of children. They usually will kill the last born because the last born. So if I've already invested 17 Mm -hmm. years in raising a child, right? And, they are about to enter, enter the reproductive window of their life trajectory, then I don't wanna kill them, right? Because, I mean, don't, don't forget that I also extend my genes through my children having children, right? Because when my children have children, I am linked to them one quarter of their genes, right? So this is called inclusive fitness. So I, can, I could propagate my genes either directly, I have children, or by investing in my kin. And therefore, in cultures where you have infanticide, you, and typically the reason why you have infanticide is because you realize that you don't have the necessary resources to see them through to maturation. And so you make the very cold calculation of ending, if you want their life, well, you do so if they're two months old, you don't do it to a 17 year old who's about to be reproductively viable themselves.
1: Yeah. So when I asked this question of other people, they, by the way, this was an interview question. So, and, and it was a, you know, trying to figure out where a person stood. And it would many times give a cultural answer because, you know, Latinos, maybe they would choose their mom because the connection with mom, you know, Americans would choose their, you know, wife. And you have, you know, different uh, Asian that would choose their child because it's future. You know, it's very interesting, but it's definitely always starts a uh, conversation about what direction to go with this. So let's let's go back to what you were, go ahead.
0: Sorry, forgive me for interrupting you, Patrick, because what, what you just said, has such uh, an implication for a segue. Uh, Yes, you're right that there are cultural differences, but underneath these cultural differences, there are some consistent human universals. So speaking about children, so when a child is born, irrespective of which culture you come from, typically people will say, oh my God, the child looks exactly like the father. And you're much more likely to say so if you are from the mother's family. Because you're trying to convince the mother's family that she didn't stray from the relationship.
1: Oh, my. So since you went over there, okay, infidelity men, infidelity women. You know, uh, uh, how does man respond to it differently than a woman responds to infidelity?
0: Great question. So there is some fantastic research that was done uh, back in the early 1990s, where they asked men and women to imagine their partner either engaging in sexual infidelity or romantic infidelity. Romantic infidelity, your husband always has lunch with this uh, wonderful colleague of his. They share their dreams. She understands his humor. So there's no sex. It's all platonic, but there's an emotional bond that is forming. Well, guess what happens? Men respond much more harshly to sexual infidelity women respond a lot more harshly to emotional infidelity. Why? Because again, men are responding to the threat of paternity uncertainty. Women are responding to the threat of you removing your investment from the relationship. And it turns out that it's a much bigger predictor of me packing my bags and leaving you if I develop an emotional bond with another woman rather than just a sexual dalliance. This is why men oftentimes in a very... uh, Uh, clumsy way, when they are caught cheating one time at a conference at somewhere, they'll say, she meant nothing to me, it was a one-time thing. What they are effectively doing is speaking to that evolutionary concern, which is, I could completely decouple my investment in you from the fact that I just had a desire for sexual variety. Now, by the way, when I explain these things, oftentimes people who hate evolutionary uh, theory will get upset because they think that if you explain something scientifically, this means that you are justifying it or condoning it. And I'm, of course, doing no such thing, right? If you're studying cancer, that doesn't mean that you are for cancer. It doesn't mean that you are justifying and condoning cancer. It means that you're studying cancer. So if you want to understand all sorts of ugly things that people do, you have to study them properly. And that's why I love evolution so much.
1: What what a thing to study, infidelity on how women respond to it versus men. So you know, th- this is a channel, a lot of our audience, they're entrepreneurs, business owners, sales, you know, they're executives, they're, they're running. Now, obviously, we got bodybuilders, you know, we have uh, mob, we have politics, we have different things that we cover, but specifically, it's business. Marketing. So you just said consuming instinct, what Juicy Burgers, Ferraris, pornography, and gift giving reveals about human nature, right? So a company's built their brand on having a certain set of audience. That's who they draw. Let's just say, Pick a product. You know, if you got Fox News, Republicans, CNN, Democrats, MSNBC, Far Left, ESPN, sports, you know, you go to Yahoo Horoscope, certain, anyways, you go to all these different places. How do you see this? Because a company as big as Victoria's Secret, who's known who their customer is for the longest time, and who buys their stuff, who to appeal to. How do you view and justify a company that big with a CEO to say, look, we're gonna go in a complete different direction? We're not gonna have our, you know, the the what do you call it, their angels anymore that you see and all this stuff, they're the girls. Now we're gonna go, we're gonna get activists, we're gonna go in a complete different angle. We're not gonna to go to that route. How do you justify to say, yeah, they're doing the right thing, they're going the right direction versus saying they're about to pay a price for it?
0: Well, they are gonna pay a uh, they are going to pay a price for it. And uh, so one of the things that I do in my, say, when I'm teaching MBA classes and I'm doing all this evolutionary stuff, I, I want to kind of assuage the, the, the worry of my students because they feel as though they've wrongly fallen into the wrong class, some biology class, rather than some MBA course in consumer behavior. And I tell them, you know, be patient because it's all going to come together. I'm teaching you now the universal explanations for human behavior, but then I will give you some very practical implications in, in marketing. So, and, so to address your question, let me give one such example. So if you look at romance novels, romance novels are almost exclusively read by women all around the world. There is sure. there's not a single culture where that phenomenon is reversed. So if I wanna study female uh, preferences, I could could look at the archetype of the male hero in a romance novel to see what what is it that women fantasize about when they are consuming such a product. And it turns out that it's always the exact same guy. It's as if it's plagiarized across every single romance novel that's ever been written, Patrick. So what is he? He's tall. He is socially dominant. He is a count, meaning a prince, and a neurosurgeon. He is reckless (laughs) and a risk taker. He wrestles alligators on his six-pack, but he could only be tamed by the love of this one good good woman. I just shaved. I just saved you, the 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 heartache or or, or the effort of having to read every romance novel that's ever been written.
1: I should have now, never read Fifty Shades of Grey.
0: Exactly. So now let's. So that's my my next point. Now is going to bring home the, the 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 question that you asked. So a few years ago, a company, I don't remember their name, uh, was a progressive company. They wanted to create a new line of romance novels that extricated themselves from this archetypal view of the toxic masculine man. And so they created a new line where the guy you know, is sensitive. He cries all the time. He sucks his thumb. He watches Bridget Jones' diary. Well, guess what happened? The consumers, in this case called women, said, sorry, not interested. That's not what I fantasize about when I'm trying to escape in a romance novel. So if you do things as a company that violate fundamental tenets of human nature, the market has a very clever way of correcting your misconceptions. So I always tell my students, uh, ultimately, a good marketer is one who understands human nature, whether they've taken my courses or not. So that's the bottom line.
1: It's interesting you say that. So I it took, me fi- I took five years to write a fiction book, okay? It's a young adult fiction book. And it's, you know, we brought a lot of uh, consultants in. We went through a lot of different revisions back and forth. And once we got to sitting down with the publisher, and the publisher said, your book has to be appealing to women, young adults. The audience who reads young adults, 70% are going to be this age to this age. If you can appeal to them, you're going to be able to get a book that's going to sell. If you don't, it's not going to work out. So even the the marketers, the sellers, the publishers sit there and say, yeah, we're not interested in that. It's not a business model that's going to work. So to you, based on what you're saying right now, because here's how I process it. I process it as if you go read any of the old marketing books, you know, which ones I'm talking about, you know, there's a, a Kellogg and, you know, you go through some of these that everyone reads at all MBA, you know, business schools, you know, you'll see certain approaches on how to get colors, story, marketing, pitch, all that stuff. But it looks like many of these companies are getting away. Maybe not all of them. A lot of them are getting away from sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, that whole thing. Does sex, drugs, and rock and roll still sell today?
0: I mean, they do. Uh, certainly the sex part. So, for example, if I'm trying to sell beauty products, uh, putting a per, an endorser who has facial symmetry is going to work because Facial symmetry is a marker of good phenotypic quality. It means that you haven't been exposed Facial to the pathogen, right? Yeah. So to be beautiful is to be symmetric. So whether I am selling a cosmetic line in Romania or Bolivia or Nigeria, people in all those countries, irrespective of the race they come from, irrespective of the ethnic group and so on, they're all going to agree as to who is beautiful. I think the problem, and maybe that's what you're alluding to, is that now we've been parasitized, to use a term from my latest book, we've been parasitized by so much wokeism that now companies have, in many cases, lost focus of their main mission, right? Now it is no longer enough to provide consumers with a product that they need without harming some third party, let's say the environment. Now I need to appear as though I am socially... Engaged that I am fighting against social injustice. Think of the Gillette ad a few years ago. I don't know if you remember it, Patrick, where they were sort of down talking to all men: "Stop being toxic masculine men." Well, I don't. I don't want Gillette Razor Company to be lecturing me and patronizing me about how to be a better man. Why don't you shut your mouth and just sell me a good, uh, you know, razor, and I'll worry about demoralizing at home. So. In my view, I think it's a mistake for companies to be engaging in all of this blue-haired uh, wokeism.
1: Why do people fall for though? I mean, you look at so many people, like, like for example, when uh, Nike announced they're going with Kaepernick, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, I don't know if you remember that. We're like, hey, here's the direction Boy. we're gonna be going. And they did, and they would say, I will never buy another Nike ever again. And then Nike just announces, we have our biggest quarterly profits, you know? And then the other side says, they were right. The marketing team knew what they were talking about. And folks are like, well, I guess we didn't know what we were talking about. So once they show the data, some people are saying it's kind of good to take a position today versus before a lot of people played it neutral.
0: Um, as, as you were speaking, I brought out a prop. Let me explain what it is. It's a memory stick. But for a second, pretend that it is the cork of a wine bottle. Okay. okay. In Arabic, there's an expression that says getting drunk simply by smelling the cork bottle, which means what basically? It means that I am so weak that it doesn't take me to to drink the whole bottle to get drunk. I just need to take a whiff of the cork bottle and I'm already dizzy with drunkenness, right? So Kaepernick is exactly that, right? For most people who are too imbecilic to kind of understand the greater issues, he just seems as though he's fighting for justice. So these are the people who are getting drunk by the smell of the court. But for most people, I think, and there's actually been a study that has tried to look at, does wokeism work in terms of the share that, you know, does it, does it improve, uh, you know, increase uh, the share price of the company? And the results certainly don't support that, that, that being woke, becoming more blue haired in your engagement doesn't lead to higher share prices. So Yes, some people will succumb to that kind of uh, virtue signaling, but I think most consumers are smart enough to understand when it's just empty, virtuous signaling.
1: Is, is the whole idea about, you know, who cares about controversy? As long as people are talking about it, you're winning. You know, the whole thing about, you know, negative media attention is a still, you know, marketing is marketing, doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative. Do you agree and uh, agree with that?
0: I mean yes in the sense that we to to bring it back to evolution we've evolved to pay a lot more attention to negative information than to positive one and and precise for obvious you know evolutionary adaptive reasons and so once you have some controversy that is laden with some negativity even if it's false by the way you've probably heard the old uh, story about uh, a falsehood can travel 10 times around the world before it is you know corrected before well that's the, yeah. Exactly, right? And so so yes, I do believe that controversy works. By the way, I know a lot of colleagues of mine who were completely obscure in academia. I mean, they they were they never published anything. They they were hardly at good schools. They were very very obscure D-level academics who then faced some controversy and suddenly were catapulted to the front lines. Yeah. Uh and so yes, I completely agree that controversy sells.
1: I mean, look at uh, Jordan Peterson, right? Oh, I mean, well,
0: I don't. I wouldn't put him in the D list, by the way. He's not. Uh, a he's man. not a
1: D list. No, no, no. We, we, hes the only guy we've ever had on four times. Jordan Peterson's the only guy we've interviewed four different times, so, and I had him at our I- event. Should I, had I be
0: a, offended that you've invited him four times before going to Dr. Sad for the first time? But, One could be offended, but uh, I should be magnanimous and not be offended. As
1: an evolutionary behavioral scientist, today we're going to find out if we can invite you back for a second time. Which at this, at this pace we're going, you're definitely being invited back. But oh yes, but, but you know we had him on. We had him at an event two years ago. I had President Bush, Kobe Bryant, Jordan Peterson, Billy being at an event with seven thousand people in MGM. And I interviewed Jordan Peterson. That was exactly a month before he went away. And he, yes. he was kind of dealing with his own personal issues. But look at Jordan Peterson. He faces off against what the university wanted to do. He comes out and says, this is the stand I'm taking. Boom. Next, you know, he takes off. You know, look at Trump comes out and says, hey, uh, if you remember the 2015-2016 uh, Republican side, day one, everybody thought Scott Walker and Jeb Bush were going to win it. I don't know if you remember Scott Walker, like the main Wisconsin superstar. This is presidential Jeb Bush they one, 140 million dollars Trump comes out and says they're sending them criminals rapists drugs all this other stuff and next you know he takes off so you know there's a there's a bit of it where you're noticing that become a even in boxing today look at the Paul brothers look at Logan and Jake Paul how they're using controversy to bring eyeballs to themselves and how effective it is it's I think almost- more than
0: more than just controversy if i if i may interject Patrick i think people respect those who are not fence-sitters. I always remind people, don't be a fence-sitter, right? If if I were to ask you, who are the top five people that you admire most in the world? I'm willing to bet none of them are fence-sitters. Why? Because it takes courage to take position. Whether you like Trump or not, he's not a fence-sitter. Whether you like Jordan Peterson or not, he's a principled man. Whether you like or not sad, I go after everything and everybody. I don't care. I don't modulate the pursuit of truth To not hurt someone's feeling. That's why in in chapter eight, and I I guess we'll talk about it later, in chapter eight of my latest book, I talk about activate your inner honey badger. Why do I say that? Because the honey badger is an animal the size of a small dog, and yet it is more, you know, ferocious. It's so ferocious that it could withstand the attack of six adult lions. Why does it do it? Because it's intimidating as hell. So be a honey badger.
1: So so as an evolutionary behavioral scientist, you're looking at ways. We behave, respond, marketing, a lot of the things that you covered here yourself. And you speak to a lot of business schools, to a lot of, you know, folks who are trying to get their MBAs. What are your rules? I've read a lot of books on marketing. People have different kind of angles on how to take it, how not to take it. What what have you noticed being the formula great marketers have used historically? What is it?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are there are several. So let me give you one that kind of sure. continues what I was talking about earlier about understanding human nature. If you're a social scientist, you typically believe that the human mind, we are born tabula rasa, empty minds. And it is only socialization that makes you who you are. So why do men prefer certain types of women? Uh, Well, it's because they learned it from Oprah and uh, Elle magazine. Why do women prefer certain types of guys? Oh, it's because they saw it in Hollywood. So that perspective presumes that the mind of the consumer is infinitely malleable. I, as the smart company, can get the consumer to want and like anything that I teach them to want and like, and I think that is a grossly incorrect position, because the genes, as E.O. Wilson, the Harvard uh, biologist, said, the genes always hold culture on a leash. So, in other words, culture can can cause you and I to have slightly different food preferences, but across all cultures, people prefer more rich food than raw raw celery. So if you are a marketer, you always have to recognize the interplay between culture and genes. And if you create products that are antithetical to human nature, the market will quickly let you know that you are an idiot. So uh, let me give you another example. Uh, McDonald's and all of the other companies, fast food companies that have done well around the world, They've done well, not because they have Justin Timberlake singing a jingle, although that certainly helps because it creates top of mind awareness, but they've done very well because they offer something to my gustatory preferences that I don't need to be taught to prefer. I don't need to teach my young child that fatty, juicy French fries is something that they should respond positively to. Here's a a thought experiment. I could give you $10 billion advertising budget to sell you grass juice at McDonald's and all of the celebrity endorsers to promote it. And it's never going to take off because my gustatory preferences and yours don't like raw grass juice. So the main lesson from anything that I teach in my MBA courses is there is no way to understand the consumer without an understanding of the fundamental drivers that drive consumer behavior. And that's rooted in our biology. It's not rooted in culture. It's not rooted in religion. It's not rooted in Oprah.
1: Okay. So, so fantastic. So let's go a little bit deeper with that. So how much of what I like, what you like is what you like versus what's being sold to us? For example, let me go a little deeper. No matter how many skinny models I saw in Calvin Klein, I was never turned on by them. You know what I'm saying? So I saw this is what you're supposed to look like, like a Zoolander looking. You're, you know, looking like it did, never did nothing to me. I was almost like, can I get you a double Whopper right now? Go eat a Big Mac. Please eat some pizza and put some weight on. You're 95 pounds. You look like you're about to break if I even touch you, like I'm worried about touching you here, right? So how much of it is uh, uh, us? believing in in the dream that's being sold from media, from politicians, from our clergy, from our parents, where, you know, kids, parents tell them, you know, a good man is somebody who believes in God and lives a godly life. A good man is somebody that that takes care of themselves. Honey, you have to look sexy, put put on the right makeup, or, you know, you got to go serve the military because it's this, you got to have, you got to work hard. You know, you got to really work hard. All these things that we go through, organized, clean, athlete, my dad loves football. I'm going to go be a football player to make him proud. How much of it is the marketing being done around us by media, TV, parents, military, all that stuff? And how much of it is actually us?
0: Yeah, I mean, great. So if I were to rephrase your, your question, I would say you're, in a, in a sense, if I distill it, it's you're asking about the nature versus nurture issue, right? How much of who we are is due to nature, genes? How much of it is due to nurture? You know, all the things that you mentioned. Well, And the best way for me to answer that, I'm not not trying to do a cop-out answer. It's it's really the true scientific answer. So I'm going to use a metaphor here. So if you take all of the ingredients of a cake, you take the butter, you take the eggs, you take the flour, you take the baking soda, each of those ingredients are separate, right? Before I bake the cake. Once I bake the cake, and now I show you the final cake, if I were to tell you, Patrick, please point to the eggs. You couldn't. It's an inextricable mix. Patrick, please point to the sugar. So we are that cake. We are an inextricable melange, mix of our genes and our environments. Now, depending on the phenomenon you ask me about, it might tilt more towards nature or nurture. My height is driven a lot more by my nature than my nurture. No amount of hugging and coddling by my parents. Would have turned me into a six foot six basketball player. So it depends. So, so the best answer I could give you is it depends. Some things are almost exclusively nature. Some are largely due to nurture. But most are somewhere in the middle. I, I hope that I've given you a satisfactory answer. Yeah, l-
1: l- maybe let me go a little bit deeper with that. And and I know I know that answer. And I'm kind of a. a you know, a, a word, the nature, and we'll debate that all the time. Are entrepreneurs born? or Are they made? And we'll kind of go, I'm going a little bit deeper than that. So for example, um, you know, I sit there and I market the idea of being gay and lesbian to you. On TV, it was getting, I don't know, 0.2% of TV or media was showing what a gay character is, or commercials having gay, lesbian, all that stuff, right? And today it's it's widely accepted, left and right. It's no longer like a thing Uh-oh. where of you know Trump was asked on his campaign, hey, so what do you think about the LGBT? He says it's a law. What do you want me to do? That's what let's go next topic. And it's just kind of moved on. No one's debating it anymore, except from the far extreme conservatives, you know, more clergy-based, you know, faith-based Republicans. But if I if I increase that from 0.1% to 1% to 2% to 5% of coverage on TV to 10%, and it's now my face, does it influence me as a kid thinking, you know, maybe I am gay, maybe I am lesbian, maybe I no. does it influence that at all?
0: No. So I think what it would do if we if we take that specific example yeah. you're giving, what the changes in culture will do is that it might normalize the existence of homosexuality, such that we no longer consider it a taboo, right? So through those interventions, we change the cultural norms that allow us to now view same-sex couple as, you know, just who who cares? I can just, you know, without batting an eye. But it's not going to affect my underlying sexual preferences, which are innate, right? But interestingly, by the way, a lot of the activists, now look, look how silly this can get. A lot of the activists will argue that heterosexuality is learned, whereas homosexuality is innate. Now, that is insane. We are a sexually reproducing species. So you would think that for a sexually reproducing species, the default value would be heterosexuality. But apparently, I'm just a dumb evolutionary behavioral scientist.
1: Well, I want to show you this. I This literally just came up while I'm talking to you. I just searched it on Google. So let me try to share screen and just kind of show this to you. I want to hear your thoughts on this. So this is from Gallup. So Gallup shows, let me know if you can see it. I can see. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so Gallup shows that since 2012 till today, American self-identification as LGBT went from 3.5% to 3.6%, 3.7%, 39 now 5.6% identify as LGBT up 2% from just eight years ago to 2020. So in Gallup is pretty center, you know, it's not left or it's right. Uh, where, you know, like, for example, maybe I'll take a different angle with this. I don't have to go necessarily to this. Let's take another one. I'm speaking at a conference. They invite me to speak. Um, group of pastors. Hey, marketing. They wanted me to talk specifically on the marketing side. Hey, why is, you know, money being given to churches down? Christian, non-denomination, not necessarily on a denomination, specifically non-denomination. Why is it down? You know, these young people just don't get it anymore. And I said, you know what? Go to Mormon's YouTube channel. So if you go to Mormon's YouTube channel, Mormonism is up, okay? You go to a bunch of churches, they're up. Non-denomination is low, okay? Why is that? What are you guys doing that you weren't doing before, right? Okay, here's another one for you. The argument of atheists, that argument wasn't that high. 50 years ago okay we had it don't get me wrong of course we've had it for a long time this isn't a new thing Thomas Jefferson had an element of debating the existence of God so it's not a new thing I'm not sitting here telling you everybody always believed in God but you'll hear a lot of people say things like this you know I used to be a Jew I used to believe in all this other stuff and I used to be Catholic I used to be Christian but listen we're, we're much smarter today you know we know let's face it there is no God what are you talking about it's been proven all this other stuff is that because we're smarter or is that because the people on TV and social talking about that God doesn't exist has increased the percentage of that message being given where people are starting to say, you know what, maybe you're right. God doesn't exist. I'm trying to see how yeah. much of that's being influenced from media.
0: I think it's uh, it's several factors, whether it be the LGBTQ data that you shared from Gallup or whether it be the atheism example that you gave. So one possibility is by creating a, quote, safer environment for someone to truly identify as an atheist, when in the past it was difficult for me to do so, or to truly identify as a member of the LGBTQ community, whereas earlier I would have been ostracized by my family and kicked out of my small town in the Southern USA, then those, those patterns go up, not so much because there are now more LGBTQ people, but because people are more comfortable admitting to who they are. So that's one possibility. But there's a slightly more, uh, I mean, not sinister, but, uh, you know, less uh, clear example. And actually, I had a guest on my show. It it hasn't aired. The the conversation hasn't aired. Her name is Abigail Schreier. She wrote a book where she basically argued that the increase in transgender young women, so biological women who now self-identify as male, is akin to a social contagion right? In other words, in the same way that a contagion can spread, ideas also spread. And so for whatever reason, it becomes intoxicating to be a member of that identifiable group. So the next question you can ask me, well, why would anybody ever want to self-identify as a member of a marginalized group like the LGBTQ folks, people? And here, actually, I'm going ahead to uh, my latest book, I actually explained this using, using something called a psychiatric disorder called Munchausen syndrome. Can I take a minute or two to explain? Go for please. So in 2010, I had written a scientific paper in a medical journal on Munchausen syndrome, which is the mechanism whereby someone feigns a illness so that they can garner the empathy and sympathy that comes with having that illness. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is even more diabolical because this is when you have someone under your care, your elderly parent, your pet, or typically your biological child, you harm them, you physically harm them so that you can then garner the empathy and sympathy by proxy. Oh, poor you, you're a parent of an ailing child. So I was trying to understand the evolutionary reason why biological mothers would harm their children to get that ego stroke. So now I'm going to tie it in with that social contagion that I just talked about. Well, to the extent that it now becomes a form of victimhood to be a member of a marginalized group, I can get my ego strokes, my empathy and sympathy by being a member of that group. You follow? Now, as you might imagine, Abigail Schreier got into a lot of trouble because quote, she was erasing the voices of those transgendered kids. Now, she wasn't saying that transgenderism doesn't exist. She wasn't saying that we should be bigoted towards transgenderism. She was simply saying that for some of the people, they aren't truly transgendered. They are simply succumbing to a social contagion. So to go back, to finalize with your Gallup poll, I suspect that some of that uptake is due to the social contagion effect.
1: So the irreversible damage is the one I think you're talking about. The exactly right. So, exactly right.
0: Exactly so, right.
1: So, so let's go on that. Let's, let's go even deeper with that on what you're saying. So I'll give you a story. I'm in the Army. I'm 18, 19 years old. I love women like I can't have enough of them. Like I was like, you know, I I'm, I'm, I was greedy, extremely greedy, right? And I was a capitalist. I I wanted to experience everything and anything I could. One day, one of the guys at our unit says, I found the sickest club, but I can't tell everybody about it because we could all be kicked out of the army if they find out what club this is. I said, what club is it? It's a gay club. So it's a gay club. Yeah, but I'm telling you, it's the best club in America. I'm like, it's the best club in America. Where is it at? It's in Nashville, Tennessee. Get out of here. No one's going to put the best club in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm telling you, it's the best club in Nashville, Tennessee. What's the name? I can't tell you. I just have to take you there first. All right. So at this point of the game, thank God I trust this guy because he was my workout partner, So I asked him, I said, listen, I mean, I partied with you. I've never seen you like men. He says, no, no, you don't understand. I don't like men, but you got to go here with me. You'll see why it's unfair. I said, okay, let's go. So we go to the club. So we take one of our friends. It's four of us, now. two of our friends. By the way, all of them till today uh, were in contact. So we go to the club. First of all, women are there with the intention of they don't want to be flirted. They want to be left alone, right? So they're kind of going, there, saying, oh, the gay men, I love gay men because they're this, they're that. So there's only a few straight men there. We're, we're four of them, okay? So, so the market's on our side. We're winning here, right? But we go in, and obviously, it was exactly what he said. It was unfair. It's like the movie Wedding Crasher, where the scene where Owen Wilson goes to meet uh, uh, Will Farrell, and Will Farrell's like, Ma, wheatloaf. He says, man, I'm not going to weddings anymore. I'm crashing funerals. You got to see. It's like it's not even fair because, you know, all this stuff. Anyways. Now, obviously, there's a part of it that's not funny, but that's humor movie. You know, we all watch okay. Wedding Crash, it's funny. But one of my friends, a guy comes and flirts with them. Now, for me, it's like, listen, it's cool. I get along with everybody, I'm very comfortable, but I have no interest. But one of the guys comes and tells one of our friends, and he says, So you like men? No, I like women. He asks a simple question afterwards: How do you know? And I gotta tell you, <laughs> this question of how do you know confuse the living crap out of this guy. So we leave the place. We got a one-hour drive back. It's two o'clock in the morning. We've had twenty beers in us. We're driving with you know alcohol levels that's not appropriate at all. The entire time he's like, how do I know? Like, what are you doing? I says, but but I, Pat, I really don't know. Says, what, what do you mean?
0: How do you? How do you fantasize over? What do you masturbate <laughs> over? What do you so, think-
1: but here's what's crazy about it. You know what ended up happening? No. This guy experienced just to find out if he knows or not.
0: That, that's so what he, he had a gay encounter just to answer that question.
1: Just to answer that question, whether he did or not. So, so the part I'm going to you with this, obviously, there's humor behind the story, but it wasn't humorous on the drive back. I'm just I just remember being hammered and we're cracking up about it. But the point I'm trying to make to you is. If media and TV, social, if they have this much power, if they just put it in your mind to say, how do you know cocaine isn't good for you? How do you know you're not a trans? How do you know you're not this? How do you know you're not that? How do you know? We don't know. How do you know communism doesn't work? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? You're like, maybe I don't know. Maybe it is euphoric. Maybe it is utopian type of a life. Maybe I should try it. That's what I mean when I say the marketing today, the amount of influence they have. Is it really changing the way we're wired because we're questioning stuff about ourselves that maybe we just don't know?
0: Uh, I don't. I, I I wish marketers had that much influence. They don't. Uh, now in your in the case of your friend, maybe he had some you know some questions that he needed answered. But I think that if you were asked a hundred men uh, who are you know avowed heterosexuals, how do you know you don't want to get sodomized by a Turkish hairy guy? How do you know? They'll say, well, because I don't fantasize about that. I it, basically, I've li- my entire internal life of fantasy has been rooted in fantasizing over Beyonce and not about a Turkish hairy guy sodomizing me. So, so I don't think it's that mysterious, and I don't think any marketing guy is going to convince me to go to a gay sauna, uh, you know, and have sodomy. So, so I think that that's on your friend. But I will mention something uh, that is scientifically interesting to what you asked there is something called sexual fluidity. And it's actually, it's a a real term whereby, so if you look at women, they're much more likely to be fluid. So for example, a woman could be completely committed to being a heterosexual woman. She really prefers men. But, you know, in that uh, dorm at Wellesley on that cold evening night when my girlfriend and I were really tight and we started wrestling, a little lesbian session broke out. Now, I, I say that, you know, in a, in a jocular manner, but women have the capacity to be a lot more fluid in their sexuality whilst completely being, uh, you know, committed to being heterosexual. It's much, much less likely in men. And and the data, the scientific data suggests that. Very few men wake up on a Tuesday and say, today I have to kind of think inside do I want to be clobbered by Shaquille O'Neal or is it going to be Beyonce night? No, I think I'm going Shaquille. Very few guys. Maybe your friend was one of those, but he's a unicorn.
1: I hope he doesn't see this interview because he's going to be upset with me. I highly doubt he's going to see it. But well, we didn't mention his name, so we don't no, know we him. did not. So we're safe. We're safe. We let's just give him a name. Let's call him. Uh, let's call him uh, Jackson. Is what we're going to call him. Okay. All so right. all right. So. But let's go back to that. Let's go back to that. Whether you're gonna wake up in the morning with a fantasy about getting clobbered by Shaq. I can't see that happening with you, but it let's just see. Somebody does
0: wake up sitting he, He'd be, be clobbered by me. I'm the guy in that relationship. He's the girl, Mrs. Shaq.
1: <laughs> that, <laughs> that visual is, is just a here. very strange visual i'm gonna try to take out of my head today guy that's not a visual i want to have with a evolutionary behavioral scientist hooking up with shack so 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 let's let's get away from that let's go to a whole different place but specifically to that topic okay so let's get away from the gay and how do you know right let's go to uh uh the same phrase being repeated a billion times until you're like you know what Men are dogs, 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 dogs. hoes before bros, bros before hoes, so he's like a woman, all women do this, all men lie, all men like that's you hear that a billion times. You're like, you know what? That's right. You know, men are this, men are that okay. So 1960, 64% of African Americans are voting Republican. 1964. 92% 92% of African-Americans are voting Democrat. Okay, let me say that one more time. I'm sorry, 1960, 64% of African-Americans are voting Democrat, 64. 36 are voting Republican, 64 voting Democrat. That's in 1960. Fast forward four years later, Barry Goldwater, 1964, 92% is voting Democrat. It went from 64 to 92 in the span of four years, right? So the messaging, uh, and today, by the way, the numbers are on 88%, 84 to 88%, we're still at that same number. Trump, it was a little bit lower, but you're still at around the mid-80 range that we have today. So you hear the phrase, Democrats or Republicans, Democrats are for Blacks, Democrats are for Blacks, Democrats are for Blacks, Democrats are for Blacks, Democrats are for black." You go look at Jews, Jews come to America, the rich Republicans, uh, country clubs didn't allow Jews on, right? No Italian, no Jews, no, you, you know, you've seen that sign before, right? So Jews, so powerful, they make so much money. Why are they Democrats? Most of their beliefs is conservative, but why are they Democrats? Because Democrats are for Jews. Democrats are for Jews. Democrats are for Jews. Democrat, I'm Armenian. Your wife is Lebanese-Armenian. I'm Armenian-Assyrian, right? Now, this is, so my mom, one day I'm talking to her and I say, mom, you know, everybody in school is talking about Democrats and Republicans. What the hell are we? I still don't know. What are we? My mom's like, nope. You know, one day you're going to read the book Karl Marx. We're Democrats is what we are because Democrats are for the poor, Republicans are for the rich. You know what I said? I said, I want to be a Republican one day, mom, because I want to be rich. I don't want to be Republican. I just want to be rich. And she says, no, we're for Democrats. How much does messaging, repeating it over and over and over and over and over again, get me to flip to a different side, whether I look at somebody in a good way, a bad way, an ugly way?
0: Yeah. That, that, well, repetition, as, as a matter of fact, I've done research on what's called advertising repetition effects, right? So how many times should I repeat a message? But by the way, even for repetition effects, there is an inflection point. In other words, repeating a message many times is great up to a point, but then you repeat it beyond that point, it can backfire against you, right? So it's an inverted U. Got but, it. But, but yes, absolutely. You're right. That repetition is one of the central tools in the arsenal of weaponry that marketers will use. Now, let me give you a, a somewhat fancier you know, cognitive psychology explanation for why people succumb to this. So, there is a, a German psychologist by the name of Gerd Gigerenzer who developed a research stream called Fast and Frugal Heuristics. Heuristics are, me- are mental shortcuts, right? It's, it's a decision rule that you could deploy rapidly. So, what's a fast and frugal heuristic? A fast heuristic is one that you could deploy very, very quickly. And it's frugal in that it is not cognitively costly to deploy. So, And let me give an example of a fast and frugal heuristic in your wheelhouse of investment and so on. So there is something called the recognition heuristic, which basically goes as follows. Choose that which you recognize. So if I give you two investment portfolios, or an investment portfolio made up of a bunch of companies. Some of the companies I recognize. I recognize Coca-Cola, I recognize Ford, but I don't recognize Gentech. So one group of people are going to implement the following investment strategy, a fast and frugal strategy. Simply choose to invest in stocks of companies that you recognize. So that's one strategy, right? It's a very naive one, right? The other one is use all sorts of mathematical modeling from PhDs in mathematics from Princeton to come up with the optimal investment diversified strategy. Guess what? The simple fast and frugal heuristic performs just as well as the fancy one. In other words, there are evolutionary reasons when simply deploying a fast and frugal heuristic works just as well. So now let's link it back to the repetition stuff. Most people are cognitive misers, meaning that they are intellectually lazy. I don't want to spend all my time knowing whether Islam is peaceful or not. If Barack Obama tells me enough times that Islam is peaceful, then I will simply use that as a shortcut and then it will make my world much simpler. You follow what I mean? Mm-hmm, so, there, yeah. so there is a cognitive entic- enticement for me to simply be swayed by a repetitive message. Because if if I, if I don't do that, I'm going to have to do the heavy lifting of actually going out to find out for myself. So for example, if I want to truly find out, find out whether historically the Democrats were the racist ones or not, well, that's going to have to force me to actually do some work, whether it be on Google or in the library. Yep. Screw that. Why don't I just believe Uncle Joe Biden who tells me that, no, it's the Republicans that are the KKK white supremacists and that's good enough for me. So I think that instinct of succumbing to repetition stems from the fact that most people are cognitively lazy. By the way, the answer that I just gave not only guaranteed that I will be invited again on your show, it has guaranteed that I will be the number one most invited guest on your show. (laughs) <laughs> Why don't you smoke that?
1: Listen, I got to tell you, your level of humility is on a whole different level. I mean, it's just, it's like a <laughs> I am number level. one
0: most humble guy of all time.
1: <laughs> I, I don't think so. And I, I wouldn't, I, I, I don't think that necessarily helps at the highest level when you want to get your message across. But go back on that. You know, we were having a debate, friends, family were sitting there. And this is the question I'm asking. You know, it's the question is, uh, you know, oh, things are changing dramatically. Things are really changing. You know, it's just, oh my gosh, we've never had a like this before. Okay, have quiet rich people who make their money, create jobs and take care of people, have they been around? Yes. Have con artists, rich people who abuse people, take advantage of people, have they always been around? Yes. Have lazy people who want to be entitled to your wealth and tell you how unfair it is on why you're making money, have they been around? Yes. Have people who always, you know, look at themselves as the, you know, you don't even understand what kind of, and they use guilt or, you know, if you only knew how hard my life was, you would know why I'm not winning. They're always looking for a reason why they're not, have they always been around? Yes. Have people who sit in the middle and I say, I don't know, I kind of agree with both sides. I don't know if I fully agree there. I don't know, but you know what, you kind of make sense. Have the people in the middle always, always been around? Yes. Have dictators always been around? Yes. Have arrogance always been around? What's really changed? I mean, what has really changed today? Are we really behaviorally changing that dramatically today versus 100 years ago,
0: 200 years ago, 500? And if yes, how? So, well, it depends on which phenomenon you're speaking of. I mean, on in, in some things, of course, there is a social evolution that happens where, uh, you know, I used to, I mean, I, I'm speaking generically. I've never smoked, but you know, I used to think that uh, smoking was okay because the pharmaceutical companies told me that it's healthy to be a smoker. But then I learned through epidemiology that it's actually not true, and so I altered my behavior. So, so it's so there are some things that are impervious to change. The fact that you and I and probably every other man who's ever lived prefers a woman who has an hourglass figure to a woman who is like the one you mentioned, the heroin chic, the the ninety pound woman. Or you know, or there is no culture where men uh, repeatedly prefer women that look like male Olympic swimmers with broad shoulders and narrow waists. That is never going to change. No amount of marketing is ever going to alter that because that is such an indelible part of what makes me a human that you're not. No persuasion is ever going to change that. But on other things, there is a change, right? Uh, who could have foreseen? the types of intoxicating, addictive power that social media has on our kids 10 or 15 years ago. Today, it's probably harder for me to get my kids to, to, pry, to pry the cell phone away from my kids than it is to, to have them uh, love me, right? It, it, it's impossible to get them to get off the, the social media. So, so some things are open to change, other things are not. And I guess that's exactly what an evolutionary behavioral scientist does. He, tries to, he or she tries to study those things that are interacting with the environment versus those things that are an indelible part of our human nature
1: very cool and that's why we need you that's what we need you around that's what we need you to keep doing. And your by the way
0: just uh, just to clarify when i do all that bombastic grandiose stuff i am joking i'm not genuine i'm of actually course. a very down-to-earth guy of
1: course listen just from talking but you're the kind of guy i would want to go to dinner and you know, debate topics, talk topics, go deeper. You're that guy. You're the person Any day guy wants in. to be friends with, and just have dinner with you. I mean, that's how I judge. In, in a military, you would you would see who you would get along with. You're like, this is just a guy I want to be friends with. This this is the kind of person you want to have in your life. That's Can, the I, can, tell I, get can I
0: tell you something? That, by the way, what you just said means a lot to me, and it's, it's very sweet. Thank you so much, Patrick. I tell people, so I receive, as you might imagine, you know, tons of fan mail and all that. The ones that mean the most to me or some of the ones that mean the most are precisely from military guys so the guy who is the navy seal the guy who is the special forces who says you know what we wa- we would have wanted you to be with us and i don't know maybe it's the machismo part but i'm like i want to hear from that guy not from the stanford professor smoking the pipe and so i i really understand what you mean it's about being in the trenches with guys that are cool that have your back I'm all about that. Now, maybe, by the way, that comes from the fact that I was also a very competitive soccer player. So when you're a competitive soccer player, you can't get offended by every word that someone says. It teaches you to be anti-fragile. You don't wilt away because someone trash talks you. And so maybe there's also that element that allows probably someone like you and I to to get along and be sympathetic.
1: I was having a, a conversation with these two guys who were trying to troll me. And I told the guy, I said, is that really the best you got? I said, do you realize if you were in the army, the guys at my unit would destroy you with the way they would troll? You, you would emotionally be hiding in a closet for the rest of your life. You guys got to pick up your trolling game because you don't have it. But but let me let me go to your latest book. So okay. the parasitic mind, how infectious ideas are killing common sense. What, what infectious ideas today do you feel have are creating a lot of momentum and why?
0: Right thank you for uh, talking about the the latest book. So let me kind of give you the back, the the, the elevator story of the book, and then I will answer your specific question. So I, I argue that contrary to the current pandemic that we're facing with COVID, we've faced another pandemic for the past 40, 50 years. And in this case, the virus is not a biological virus. It's a mind virus. That's why I call these idea pathogens or parasitic ideas. And so where do these ideas come from? So if the if, if we're trying to find out where the COVID virus came from, we're not allowed to say because to say where it comes from would be racist, of course. So uh, where do these idea pathogens come from? They all come from the university ecosystem. In other words, as I always remind people, it takes intellectuals and professors to come up with some of the dumbest ideas. So now I'm gonna answer your, so what I do in the book basically is I talk about all these idea pathogens, where they originate from, what downstream effects they have had on society, and then how we can vaccinate ourselves against these bad ideas. So now I answer the question of what are some examples of these idea pathogens? So probably the granddaddy of all idea pathogens, Patrick, is what's called postmodernism. So postmodernism is a framework that developed in the university environment, which basically purports the following. There are no universal truths. There are no objective truths. We are completely shackled by personal biases, by our uh subjectivity, uh, by relativism. So to speak of a universal truth is silly because there are no such truths. Now, you could imagine how that's a complete form of intellectual terrorism because Scientists do wake up every day thinking that there is a truth to be discovered out there, right? Now, the truth in science might change, right? What was true 300 years ago may no longer be true today. We update what we consider to be true, but we do operate every day under the premise that there is something to be discoverable in the world. There are natural phenomenon that are universally true. If I throw you from a building 50 times, gravity is going to have the exact same effect 50 times out of 50. So... Postmodernism is a deeply flawed and nihilistic framework because it actually takes you down a, a dead end, right? What can you build? You can't build bridges using postmodernism. You can't understand consumer choice using postmodernism. And so it creates a form of uh, chaos when students are taught all of this nonsense. Here, I'll give you one or two other idea packages. And then if you want to hear more, I'll, I'll tell you more. Social constructivism is another idea pathogen. It purports that we are all born with empty minds with equal potentiality, and it's only socialization that made us who we are. So Michael Jordan didn't start off his lot in life with a advantage over Patrick. It's only because mama hugged him enough or didn't hug him enough that he became the NBA star that he is. Now it's a very hopeful message, right? Because it basically argues that any of our children could be the next Einstein or the next Lena Messi, but it is perfectly rooted in bullshit. So each of these idea pathogens that I described, I argue they start off with a noble cause, but then they metamorphosize into the murder of truth in the pursuit of that original noble cause. Does that does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So, you know, w- what is your biggest concern outside? I mean, ob- obviously postmodernism, all these others, but what is your biggest concern with the side effects of what critical race theory could do to us in the next 12, 24, 36 months?
0: Yes, so, so critical race theory stems from one of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the book. So identity politics, the idea that I am first a member of a group before I am an individual, right? I'm, I'm not God sad. I'm Lebanese Jew first. Well, no, I am God sad. I present myself on Patrick's show not as a representative of Lebanese Jews. I present myself as God sad with all my flaws and all my merits. And I ask you to judge me based on my unique personhood. That's what classical liberalism is. Well, identity politics shatters that. It says you are a member of the LGBT community or the Muslim community or the black community or the indigenous community. That's what defines you. Now, I escaped the society that is a perfect manifestation of how you organize a society along identity political lines. Right. Lebanon, everything is viewed through the prism of your religious tribe right as a matter of fact in Lebanon there's an arabic word in in, in well in lebanese that says hawiyya hawiyya means your internal passport your internal id card so that if the cop stops you you show him your internal id well the 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 most conspicuous thing that you see on the id is which religion you belong to right the constitution of lebanon is organized along religious lines. The president has to be of this religion. The prime minister has to be of that religion. This is the number of seats this religion gets in the parliament. So everything is viewed through the the prism of identity political line. What do you end up with? You end up with the Lebanese civil war. That's what happens in the Balkans. That's what happened in Iraq. So everywhere where you create these tribal factions, they might coexist for a while, but eventually the, the stressor of this polit- you know, political allegiance to different groups will start causing mayhem in the society. So what worries me the most is that the West is losing the belt of protection that it had because of its very liberating and enlightened values. Each of these are now being trashed by all the idea pathogens that I describe in the book. So in 10, 20, 50 years, if we continue along the same lines, we will have a repeat from the Beirut that I escaped in
1: 1975. So you, you, you asked a couple of questions at the beginning. You said, what is the number one reason why uh man becomes a, uh, what did you say? A man becomes Ab- a. Abu- uh,
0: abuses children in his abuses home.
1: Abuses children is because he had a stepfather, right? That's the one that you're talking about because a stepfather always treats his biological sons, kids different than he does his stepchildren. And he said, the second reason why does a. Women end up becoming it all because a long-term relationship with the man that they had in their lives. Because men, you know, the jealousy of women cheating on him, infidelity, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so man, you know, uh, what is the ultimate thing man is willing to fight for? I have my opinions. I've read a lot of books on the topic where you think about, hey, uh, uh, when you start a new country, what do you need to have in the country to attract the best families to come on board? Okay, you have to think about what a mother thinks about every morning she wakes up, which is what? Are my kids going to be safe? So number one is security, right? And then, then, you know, the creativity of man. What does creativity man need? What do you think is the number one thing man is willing to put their lives on the line that eventually they're going to be like, listen, man, you've crossed the line. I'm going to have to fight you for this. You're going to have to kill me to take this away from you. What is that one thing for most of us? So
0: I actually discussed this in chapter one of the parasitic mind where I'm trying to explain What are the two life ideals that shape every trajectory in my life? And I came up with two, which answer your question. It's truth and freedom, right? You can't pursue truth without freedom, and uh, you can't have freedom if you're constantly murdering truth. So they're kind of they they. It's a feedback loop between these two. Now, freedom to me means many different things. It's not just. You know, freedom of speech, which of course is, is, is fundamentally the most important right. But you know, I, I try to look at decisions that I've made in my life that speak to freedom in completely different domains. So let me give you another example. When I used to be a competitive soccer player, I played what's called the playmaker role. In other words, I would float around the field looking for spaces to try to you know, be creative. Now, if a coach came along and told me, today you're playing more on the left side of midfield, you have to track back and cover. So you are restricting my freedom. I, it's as if you had decapitated my head, I lost all my creative juice. So for me, so to answer your question in a very sort of existential way, the most fundamental thing that people fight for is for freedom, right? I mean, and security is ultimately linked to freedom. If I don't have the freedom to walk outside in New York City without having a stray bullet kill me, that's not very good. So Freedom is everything. The rest is details.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. So right now, if, if freedom is everything and you are being pushed today, the other day, I, we make a video on our podcast. We talk about well, an athlete that gave his opinions on a health matter. And hey, whether I want to do this or not, a decision I don't want to take. We wrote it. We read it. What he said. That video was flagged. It got a strike. Channel was shut down for a week. And then channel came back a week later, right? And we haven't had a lot of strikes with our channel. Our channel was clear, monetized the whole nine. We followed the rules that they have. But it makes you kind of sit there and you're like, uh, I don't know if I want to touch this topic. Just like last week, I was at Rudy Giuliani's place all day. We interviewed him four hours. If the interview goes live, this is going to get millions on top of millions of views because of what some of the things he said. My attorneys are saying, don't put it up because... There's likely if something's going to happen to your channel if you put up that specific topic, what he said about that thing that he revealed to everybody, that's going to be controversial. Is it good idea that is it a good idea that we're going in the direction where we have to wake up every morning saying I don't know? Because some people are given the argument from the other side. Well, it's not you know fact checking. It's not good if it's not true. If it's not this, and how do you know this? And it's not it makes people think. It gives people ideas. How dangerous is the direction we're going with censorship?
0: I think what the example you gave is exactly the right point to make because oftentimes what people say is, well, it's not the government that's stopping you. So this has nothing to do with freedom of speech because, in their imbecilic, myopic way, they think that the attack on freedom only comes from the government. Well, you just gave an example that had nothing to do with the government. You have a unbelievably successful YouTube channel. I I checked it, 3 million. My God, I I only dream of having such reach. Congratulations. Thank you. you, You've worked hard. You've done the right things to to, to be an engaging person, to have great guests. Now you have to think twice. Do I want to lose all that? So what will you do? You'll do self-censorship, right? So when the kid in class wants to say something that's positive about Trump, he has to decide, should I say it, in which case the professor might grade me down in my grade? Uh, by the way, in, in The Parasitic Mind, I, I, I publish anonymously several bits of letters that I receive from people, from students, from professors, from parents of students, one of which was exactly this case, which is a student had worked on a paper, a scientific paper, for a while with his supervisor. The supervisor found out that the student had said something you know, mildly positive about Trump, he takes his name off the paper, so this wasn't the government stopping you from speaking. The greatest danger comes from creating a society where we will do the bidding of our of our you know, attack of freedom of speech. We self-censor, right? Now I happen to be someone who, for better or worse, I'm a honey badger, so I never modulate my. And believe me, I've had a. I used to get so many death threats that when I would go to campus, I had to be accompanied by security. The university came with me to the Montreal police to file a report because and I had to bring a whole dossier with all the death threats. So there are many costs you have to bear, irrespective of whether it's the government that's infringing your freedom of speech. So I really get upset when people say, well, so what if YouTube demonetizes you? That's not the government. That's not an infringement of freedom of speech. Well, no, because the next time that I want to put something on COVID, I'm going to think twice as to whether I'm going to say what I feel or not. So I completely agree with you. Uh, What you felt is exactly the type of problem that we need to redress so that we can truly have a free and flourishing society.
1: Here's what I believe in. I believe the bully doesn't win long term. I believe the bully creates a bigger bully that whoops his ass in ways that it hurts him for many, many years to come. Wow. That's what I believe in. Because, you know, um, when when I sit with a lot of investment bankers, who invest to different companies that I have. OK, I was with one yesterday in Fort Worth, and they manage around $28 billion, eight billionaires' money, $28 billion. One deal we're doing, they're looking at investing with me. So I sit with them. And 90% of the conversation, I crushed it. 10% of it, I'm like, wow, those questions I didn't have an answer for. I got to work on that, right? Now, 10 years ago, when I sat with guys like this, 10% of it, I crushed it. I, You know, the other 90%, I had no clue what I was talking about. And it didn't lead to a lot of business. So you get better over time. But what happens is when you bully and you only want to impose one way of thinking, to an audience who has other ideas, you make their argument stronger because they get to pick apart every single one of your argument. And then when they get the voice back, when they get the mic back, that's not a pretty sight when they get the mic back. So I I believe that the fighters show up. I believe in the sheepdogs. I believe in the guys that eventually wake up and say, yeah, that's kind of enough of you bullying. Let us kind of really show you who the real bullies are. It's the guys that sit around quietly who bully bullies. And we're very good at it. It's time to give that mic back. And you can still have a mic, but you cannot bully people moving forward. You can give your ideas, but it's no longer being forced down. So I'm optimistic that what happens long term is we're going to be taken care of. Are you in the same uh, uh, belief that that's eventually going to be taking place? or no? I,
0: I do. So if you're asking me, am I optimistic that we'll be able to address all these problems? I am. Otherwise, I wouldn't wake up in the morning with vigor and with a smile on my face and with hope. You'd be thinking about Shaq when you woke up in the morning. We don't want that. By the way, I love that you mentioned sheepdogs because we have uh, we're a family with Belgian shepherds. So I don't know. I mean, you were a military guy. All of the commandos all have Belgian shepherds. But we've had Belgian shepherds before. It was cool to be Belgian shepherds. And let me tell you. Uh, I would rather walk into a tough neighborhood with a couple of Belgian shepherds than with, you know, loaded with guns. I mean, these guys are so fierce, it's unbelievable. But okay, coming back to your question, uh, I am hopeful that there will be an autocorrective process where those who are being bullied are going to rise up. The silent majority will speak out. But here's the problem we can either solve it today peacefully through dialogue, through the battle of ideas or we could solve it down the road in a much more violent way. So so to go back to critical race theory that you mentioned earlier, you know, people are not going to sit quietly forever as their children are being taught in school that they suffer for, from dermatological original sin, as I call it, because their skin hue is white, right? So we've, we've taken the old racism against Black people, which was reprehensible then, and we've cloaked it in the robe of progressivism today, where it is perfectly okay to be unbelievably racist to white children because, you know, bruh, uh, systemic racism, okay? So good, peaceful white people are one day going to wake up and say, I've had enough. Now, do you want them to wake up peacefully by attending the parent-teacher meetings or do you want them to wake up in 40 years and be a lot more violent? The choice is yours. That's why I constantly get engaged because I don't want to see violence. I want to see us defeating those other idiots in the battle of ideas.
1: Here's the challenge with that though. The challenge with that is that most people who are in power believe they will have their power a lot longer than they usually do. They don't realize that you're eventually going to lose your power. It's just, it's not permanent, right? Sonny Francis, who is the father of Michael Francis, an infamous gangster uh, who just died a year and a half ago at the age of 104. And he goes way back, Sonny Francis, feared, feared gangster back in the days. He told his son something once. He said, listen, be very respectful to even the smallest, weakest person today, because who's in charge historically changes, who you, who reports to you today, one day you may be reporting to them. So just be respectful of everybody, whether they have power, or they don't have power. Unfortunately today, the people of power today don't respect those who don't have the power today. If they did, it'd be a different story.
0: Well, hence the deplorable argument of Hillary Clinton, right? She thought she was a shoe in for the presidency. And so she didn't need to be respectful to those great unwashed rubes. They yeah. were deplorables. And then suddenly it came back to haunt her. Now, rather than her having some humility and say, you know, I actually was a useless candidate who made some serious faux pas. It was Trump, it was the Russians, it was this. She had no humility to recognize her faults, but it speaks to exactly the point you made. She thought she was guaranteed the power so she could denigrate those that are below her.
1: And you know what I like? What Twitter did, and YouTube and Facebook did, is when she started making claims that the election was a fraud when Trump won because of Russia. It was impressive to see Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook uh, deplatform her. I, I, it was very impressive when that took place with Hillary Clinton. Obviously, hence the sarcasm that never I, happened. I was
0: just thinking. I was trying to think. Is he being sarcastic? Because that's <laughs> not how. I don't remember her being deep. well played, Grasshopper. Well played.
1: Well, listen. I gotta tell you, ninety minutes went by like it's five minutes. I had a blast with you. This Thank was a you, lot of you fun. You,
0: you are a fantastic I, guest.
1: I appreciate you for coming out, and I'm looking forward to the next time. Hopefully, next time, going to be face to face instead of over Zoom.
0: I look forward to it, brother. Thank you so much for having me on. It was lots of fun talking.
1: Anytime, to and we're gonna put the link below so anybody that wants to go order his book, his link's gonna be below. Take care.
0: Take care. Take care. Bye
1: bye bye. Right. Bye. I gotta tell you, this was one of my favorite interviews of all time because we were laughing, we were thinking. We were going, having a banter. You know, I was learning, hopefully you were learning. It was just an incredible conversation, dialogue. Those are my favorite kind of uh, dialogues that we have. And if you enjoyed this interview, there's two other interviews I want you to watch. One of them is with Jordan Peterson, where I interviewed him. Uh, This has got to be in front of six or 7,000 people at the same event where I interviewed President Bush and Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant. If you haven't seen that, it's very deep. He gets emotional. And this was right before he left for about a year, year and a half. Haven't seen it, you gotta watch this. The other one was with Daniel Lieberman. That was another one that we had a lot of fun Laughed. we talked about random things. So either one of these you can enjoy. Click on either one to watch. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.